As we stand in this sanctuary, hear the word of the Lord. First from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Our good and our holy God, we thank you on this first Sunday in Advent for Christ's coming, and for the hope that we have in Jesus, we thank you for his saving grace and mercy. We thank you that this is made possible because of your eternal and abiding love, that you so loved the world that you gave, your one-of-a-kind, unique, only-begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And God, we thank you for this promise of everlasting life with you. We are grateful for the hope of the new heaven and the new earth where we will be with you after you have wiped every tear from our eyes. We thank you, Lord, that you will ultimately be the complete and total victor over our own sin and shame and that of the nations. Lord, as we turn our hearts toward you this morning as we seek to prepare ourselves to celebrate the birth of our Lord. As we hear the word Advent again and ask what it means, Lord, we pray that you would change us and make us more like Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word that directs our path and guides our steps. As we hear it again today, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you would give us tender hearts that would receive your word as seed planted in rich and fertile soil. God, we pray that you would give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will. Give us hands for service, Lord, that our deeds in this earth would be as your very own. And Lord, we pray that a word of life and hope and 
peace, the gospel would be found on our lips. God, this is our prayer in the strong name of Jesus. And we pray together this morning saying, amen and amen. Please, please be seated. Advent is a season where we're called to remember that Christ has come among us and that he has promised to come again. In Advent, we're called to remember that our hopes are founded and built on nothing less than Jesus. As the whole world prepares to to gather on December 25th, we as Christian people begin the year gathering week by week to recall the richness and the texture of the great story that has changed all of our lives, the story that we have found ourselves in. And our fathers and mothers in the church years ago thought it fitting that on the very first day of the church year, the first Sunday in Advent, we would begin with the end and the new beginning in mind. Some of you are people that start at the end of a novel because you just can't handle the suspense. How many of those people are here? Yes, yes, you are confessing your sin even now. In some ways, this is what God has done for us, is that God understood that we would live this life going forward in a very linear fashion, and we would face all of the the trials and challenges that everybody else faces. And God gave us a vision and a hope. Our faith is not a cyclical one where we are trapped in these endless cycles of, of birth and rebirth, despair and hope and trying real hard. Ours is a linear one. We're headed someplace. We're going somewhere. We are people who have a God of promise and hope. And God in his scriptures has given us a picture, a picture of what life will be like when God is victorious totally and completely over all of his adversaries, death, hell, and the grave. What life will be like when God calls the shots and we all joyfully say a hearty amen. Right now, all of us struggle, don't we? We, we know what God wants us to do so often and we fight so hard against it. And sometimes we're very confused about what he would have us do. And, and we grope in the darkness. But the scripture paints a picture of life as God would have it. Those promises are in both the Old and the New Testament. We had a reading from each today. It's a picture of life with God. And what you find is that God is at the center of all of it. And that's very, very, very good. The problem that we run into is that we we claim lordship over every single aspect of our life and then ask God to come in and repair it when we've made a big blunder of things. Well, in the world that God is preparing, the new heaven and the new earth, he sits in the center of it all and we with voices loudly say that it's good. And Scripture wants to put that good future into our heart and for us to live with the perspective of the future crash landing into the present. God wants to give us a vision for life. And that vision for life is God himself. That's what we found in Isaiah and in Revelation. We found that God was at the center of it all. 
Our friend Mike Strew wrote a nice little book years ago called God's Renown, helping churches get a picture of what God would have us, how we should live in the world that is, is in light of the world that will be. One of my favorite quotes from that little text is that Jesus Christ is the expansive demonstration of God's glory and love. Abraham anticipated it. King David wrote about it. Aristotle longed for it. All the peoples of earth continue to look for it. He is the summit of God's glory and love. Isaiah talked about the dwelling place of God being on the highest hill. John the Revelator said, in, in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no need for a temple at all because God is the dwelling place for people. And, and, in, this, and in this gift, there is light and it comes from God himself. The highest summit of all of our hopes is none other than God in Christ. At the end of it, God doesn't give us something. At the end of it, God gives us his very self. And this is where we live. And this is where we move. And this is where we have our being. And that is good news. And the world longs for it. And we have an abyss in our heart that wants to be filled with that life. And we have an ache in our bones that cries out for it. We know we're not there yet. And we long for it. And Advent starts out by saying, that's right. That's right. That's right. So we begin with a picture of what it will be after the kingdom crashes. Let me give you another little quote. I think it's beautiful. It's at the end of W.T. Connors' The Faith of the New Testament. The final page. And we begin Advent on the final page, looking beyond it. And this is what he said. Beyond this judgment of sin and shame are the peace and the quietude of eternal victory. All the forces of evil in the natural order and all the disturbances of sorrow caused by sin are removed. Sin is conquered and righteousness reigns. The safety and richness of life, the fullness of fellowship are pictured as a city of indescribable glory and splendor. There is the activity of service. It is not a lazy man's paradise, but a place of joyous activity. God is the center of everything. The presence of God and the Lamb constitute the light, the joy, the safety of his people. Fellowship with God in Christ constitutes their blessedness forever. What makes the promise of the kingdom so sweet? Blessed life with Christ forever. This is our hope. And this is the anchor we can cast forward into our everyday future and drag us forward. And this is where we start on this first Sunday in Advent. With just this picture of life as God would have it. You say, Matt, that's wonderful. That's good. You're back on that pie stuff you talked about before Thanksgiving. But what about right now? 
What about my grocery getting life? What about all the stuff I'm doing? Why and how does this have a thing to do with any of it? You thinking that? I'm glad you asked. Because the rest of the sermon today is going to be given to the question, what do we do and how do we live as we wait? As as Connor said, even the new heaven and the new earth won't be a, a, a happy place for lazy people. That there'll be service and activity and life and joy. We are not to go sit up on the top of some mountain somewhere and just wait for Christ to do it all. I had a friend back in 1988. Do you remember 88 Reasons Christ Was Coming in 1988? Do you remember that book? Some of you still have it. You can sell it on eBay. Not going to get much. I was a little kid. My buddy Chuck Alderman, that came, everybody started talking about that. He, he, he played sick, stayed home from school, sat out on the lawn in a reclining chair that they had out there. It was country people uh, waiting for the end of the world. Chuck Alderman was dumb as a bag of hammers. But a great guy. This is not the posture we are to take. I believe that the promise of Christ are true and that what he has promised he will do. I believe that with every fiber of my being. But the scripture that I read calls us to a life of blessed activity. We're not to wait in some passive lazy boy in the yard, but to actively wait, having been touched by the blessed hope of God. So the question before us for the next few minutes is what do we do while we wait? We'll go to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll look at a couple of sentences. Peter was preparing his people uh, for the blessed promise, and this is what he said, chapter 4, verse 7 and following. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter gives us the basics. He's a man who is living his life as a stranger in Babylon, as a pilgrim journeying through the earth. He knew where his home was, and and he also knew where he lived his life. And those two things were not in conflict for him. They lived harmoniously. And and with his eye cocked toward the promise, he lived a very sober life in the earth. And he gave us a handful of things to do as we actively wait for the promise to be fulfilled. The first of those things is he says, be clear-headed and serious-minded and pray. Jesus taught Peter how to pray. Peter was part of that group of people who said, Lord, teach us how to pray. They watched him 
model prayer. They heard him give the model prayer. They were, he was there when Jesus said, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our our sins, our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Uh, Don't lead us into temptation, God, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. He was there when Jesus taught him how to pray. On the night when Jesus needed him the most, the prayer meeting that was most crucial for him, when he went deep into the garden, Peter fell asleep. He failed him at his, at his deepest point of need. But he saw him. He saw him do it. He wasn't able to, but he witnessed Jesus. He witnessed Jesus pour his heart out before God until he started sweating blood. He saw him pray. And he heard him. He heard him pray. And Jesus taught him how to pray. And Peter said, as you wait, you pray as well. Praying as Jesus prayed keeps us focused and keeps us alive. Many of you know that my, my career, if you will, my ministry, uh, I started eating out of the offering plate when I was about 18 years of age. The Jones Memorial Presbyterian Church got tired of teaching their own youth, so they subcontracted me to do it. I went from a senior in high school to a freshman in college. I went from riding on the church van to having the keys. These people were adventurous and desperate. And they hired me to be their their youth minister, and I I was still basically a youth myself. and, And I had one meeting of instruction Uh, from the person who had been doing it. He handed me the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and he said, you ever seen one of these? I said, yes, sir, I've heard of it. I didn't ask you if you heard of it. Have you ever seen one? Do you have one? I said, no, sir. He said, well, why don't you read it before you get started real good, before we give you a first paycheck, and try not to teach anything that's not in there? I said, all right, good deal. Uh, And so I went home and I read that. And I, I read a lot of lines in there. And, and one of them I never could get away from, and it was the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that little question was this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's a few sentences in that book I got some problems with, but that one's gospel. And that's how... That's how Jesus lived before the Father. He wanted above all things to glorify God. He wanted his life to reflect the will of the Father in all of his ways. And he wanted to enjoy him forever. The writer of Hebrews said that he went to the cross scorning its shame for the joy that was set before him. The Bible exalts joy And it exalts joy and is wed to the glory and the will of the Father. And Jesus showed us how it was done. He showed us in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was in serious-minded prayer. I live so differently, and so do so many of my friends. 
Years ago, John Stuart Mill wrote that pagan self-assertion is better than Christian self-denial. And many of us would give an amen to that. In fact, what we've done is we've taken a little John Stuart Mill and Oprah Winfrey and the words we learned in Sunday school and we put them all in a Cuisinart and spun them around real good and we got them out and we've put together uh, our modern theology. A modern theology says the end is, well, you and me. Advent shouts, that's wrong. That the end is God and the glory of Christ, the will of the Father. In the garden, Jesus' options got really limited. And the greatest thing God can do for any of us is to convince us that our options are limited as well. Chip Conyers, in his beautiful book, The Eclipse of Heaven, said, The appearance of limits, the realization of limits, is a necessary prerequisite to a sense of transcendence. In the garden, all the options were not open for Jesus. But God was alive for Jesus. And Jesus was alive unto God. And in that moment of prayer, Jesus' will and the will of the Father aligned just perfectly. And he set his face like flint for the joy set before him in the glory of the kingdom. Walker Percy understood this. In the opening scenes of his novel, The Last Gentleman, he said, Lucky is the man who does not secretly believe that every possibility is open to him. Blessed is the man. Prayer keeps us focused. And in that focus, we find the liberating constraints that we all need in order to live truly vital lives on this earth as we eagerly await our blessed hope. So what do we do while we wait? We pray. We pray. And we love. He said, have fervent love for one another. And then he said, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, how do we understand that? There was a season in my life where I really wanted to understand that line, and I really didn't. There was a season in my life when I was a sophomore in college that I, what I really was banking on was my sophomoric interpretation of that line being correct. I thought that meant at a season in my time that if you were just really, really warm and fuzzy and nice to people, then you could just pretty much do what you wanted to. I took that little scrap of a verse of Scripture and I wed it to two scraps of quotes from famous Christians. You ever taken somebody out of context? They don't like it, but you can do creative and great things with it. Those two quotes were these. One was from Augustine, and the partial quote that I took was, Love God and do whatever you please. How about that one? You can have a good time with that one, right? And then the one from Luther even topped that one when Luther just looked out and said, Sin boldly. <laughs> now, on the front and the back side of both of those things, Augustine and Luther said other things. 
But when you wed those two little famous quotes to love covers a multitude of sins, you can imagine what a sophomore in college who wants to be a somewhat of a Christian would do with them. Or maybe you can't because you're boring people. I don't know. <laughs> but that was my sophomoric understanding of that back in those days. And so now as a Bible reader, I ask the same question again. What does that mean? How do we understand it? And we go back to Proverbs 10, 12, and this is a quotation from the Proverbs, and it's, it's basically this notion that as we have love for one another, we live in such a way that we try not to ratchet up the, the conflict and the anxiety. That love allows us to live in such a way that we can put a stop to some things before they get going too bad. My grandfather and my grandmother, greatest love story I've ever known, they met because of the alphabet. My grandfather came to their little town, and, and, and she was Richardson, and he was Snowden, and they put them right there together. And it was the third grade, and, and he thought she was pretty. And he, you know, she tolerated him, but they became best buddies in about the third grade. When, when my grandfather was drafted for World War II, she proposed... She did. And on Christmas Eve, they eloped. They got married, and they were embarrassed, and they didn't tell their families for another couple of days. Then the truth came out, and they were married almost 70 years. And there's not a day right now after my grandfather's death that my grandmother doesn't miss him with all of her heart. One of the greatest love stories I've ever known. When I was in high school, I was the editor of the high school newspaper, The Wildcat. And every year, the Wildcat had a special on Valentine's Day. And mostly it was, you know, who was dating who and, and all that kind of junk. And I said, I'm just going to go interview my grandparents for the Valentine's issue of the Wildcat. And I sat down uh, with my brother word processor. You hit print, and it went like, da -da 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 -da. it was awesome. Their kitchen table. And I said, tell me what I need to know. What do I need to tell these kids at Meridian High School about the secrets the secrets to a healthy relationship. And my granddaddy, without flinching, said, never let a little thing become a big thing. I said, that's it? He said, that's the best one. Never let a little thing become a big thing. You see, there, there is a tendency for sin to just grow and fester. To start out small and become cancerous. And in communal life together, we, we tolerate that so often. And, and, and we, somebody says something and we lay awake at night with our eyes open. It was, I really should have said this to them in response to what they said to me. And the gerbil in our brain runs about a thousand miles an hour. And we can't wait till we see them again because we're going to get it said. And if we can't wait till we see them again at, you know, 1130, 12 o'clock, we're going to fire off an email. Don't ever write an email at late, ever. You're never happy about that. And, uh, and it just runs. Peter said, hey, we're waiting on the day when the glory of God illuminates the city where we will experience his pleasure and his bliss and his joy with one another without measure and without restraint. That's our common life together in the future. 
So right now, let this love that's in your heart from God, let it govern the way you live with one another. Don't let stuff grow. Maybe the best sort of common everyday pedestrian example of this is Robert Earl Keene's song, Feeling Good Again. Those of you who couldn't understand my sophomore year of college, you'll be lost here again, but I'll explain it to you later in the parking lot if you like. Robert Earl Keene's a Texas songwriter, and he, he wrote this song about life kind of coming together again after some bad stuff. And he's in this place, and he's watching, and he's watching what's going on, and he's with his friends, and, and things are kind of warming up again after a cold season of life. And, and he looks over at two friends, and, and this is the line. There's Dan and Margarita swaying side by side. I heard they were divorcing, but I guess they let it slide. Sometimes we need to let some stuff slide. And you don't, need, you don't do that by ignoring it. You do that by loving people and loving God in such a way that the little stuff stays little and the big stuff is dealt with in charity and in compassion and in long-suffering and in patience and in goodness, and in self-control. What do we do while we wait? We love. We pray. And we work. He started talking about the manifold grace of God. He talked about how God had made us differently and how God had given us spiritual gifts. And, and he talked about our common life that we can't live it on our own, but he's put us together as a group and, and that we're all to do what we're called to do for the good of everyone and his glory and the good of others in the world. We're called to serve. We're called to use our gifts and our abilities and our, our personalities and our passions and our hungers. We're called to, to not wait around to be told, but to see and to engage to walk through this life, this everyday walking through of life, asking God day by day, day by day, God, can you show me a way that I can reflect your glory and your goodness today? As I go about this and this and this, can you open a door of service for me? If you honestly begin to pray like that, I promise you, God will answer those prayers so abundantly that sometimes you'll say, hold on, God, I've got enough. And just when you have enough, what you'll find is his strength is made perfect in your weakness. And you're taken to the edge of what you thought was your ability to love and to serve others. And God will grow you and push you into another realm of living all together. You know how I know it? Because I know the testimony of Christian after Christian after Christian after Christian that had a second conversion. And that conversion was to serve in love in the name of Christ. And they all say the same thing. I never thought I would be living like this. But God has, has, has boggled my mind. And I feel alive. I feel alive. You know the most miserable Christians I know are the lazy ones. Who decided their role in life was to grade everybody's papers. 
I've met them in many towns, many different names. And I put them high on my prayer list. Not because they make my life miserable. That's one of the reasons. But because they're missing so much. So much. He's coming. That may sound cable television. But it's Bible. And it's Jesus. I believe in God's good future. I believe in it. And I believe that good future should condition our moments day by day. With our eyes cocked toward it, let us pray and let us love and let us serve for God's glory, for the good of the world, and for our aliveness. What do you say? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for a chance to be with these brothers and sisters, these friends. Lord, as we sing a song of commitment, Lord, I pray that we would all commit ourselves afresh to serving you and to loving one another and to praying earnest prayers, seeking your will and purpose for each day of our life. Open doors for us, God. Empower us to serve in the strength that you provide. Stir us again through your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Sam Still, would you lead us, friend?